Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So uh, our guest today, I mean, incredible story. He's definitely tackling a real problem. One of the biggest uh, issues right now, I mean, heart disease, you name it. I mean, the, what he's doing is unbelievable. You know, we're going to be talking about scaling, fundraising, everything that really goes into building, you know, something meaningful. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jim Min. Welcome to the show. All right, Alejandro. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So originally you were born in Oklahoma. But you were you moved quite a little bit. So tell us uh, about your upbringings. Yeah, no, it was pretty humble upbringings. Like, yeah, born in Norman and raised in a small little town in southeastern Wisconsin. Primarily, it was about half farmers, dairy farmers, soybean farmers, and half were sort of kids of university faculty. There was a small little university there, and so had a great childhood growing up, and um, definitely a protected world. It was a small town, um, but then managed to leave Wisconsin. And then since then, I've only lived in Chicago, New York, LA, and Philadelphia. So I'm definitely attracted to larger cities. So at what point would you say in your life, you you were exposed to, you know, making a difference in the world of medicine and, and being so attracted to medicine? I mean, why did you choose that career path out of all the different paths that you had in front of you? You know, I was always interested by the science. Like I, I studied at the University of Chicago and biology was my primary major. And it was always something that science drove me. And so I've always been interested in the inter intersection of sort of new biology, new science and how that can affect human life. So after college, I ended up at grad school. Actually, I didn't plan on being a physician and then found the science to be as equally engaging as it was um, in my earlier years in college. But felt that, you know, there wasn't enough human contact and enough personal sort of feeling of, of being able to help people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so I ended up uh, going to medical school after that. And that was sort of the start of it. So then in your case, I mean, you ended up going to Chicago. I mean, you did medical school in Temple, and then you ended up in Chicago, you know, doing the training there. Uh, so out of all the different areas, you know, in, in medical, right? Why? Why the, the whole, you know, heart and, and getting into that, that whole space? Yeah, it's ironic because I, I really like the procedural aspect of cardiology. I like the, the acuity of the illness and the feeling that you could really help folks. And I think that the field has done that 
quite remarkably in terms of treating patients who come in with myocardial infarction or heart attacks. And then in my last, in my second to last year of fellowship, like I was introduced to a gentleman in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who invited us up for a, a conference. And they were showing this image of coronary CT angiogram. It was on a very sort of old generation four slice CT scanner. Now we have 640 slice CT scanners. Um, but I thought to myself, you know, your research interests are around coronary heart disease and prevention of heart attacks. My plan was to go into interventional cardiology and do a lot of this acute care where you're in the cath lab or you're in the ICU. And then what I ended up doing was saying, okay, I'm going to fundamentally change the direction of what my career is because I think that this non-invasive test will fundamentally change our understanding of coronary heart disease biology. And so shifted to non-invasive imaging. Um, mostly because my interest was coronary disease, and I felt like this was a brand new tool that would allow us to study actual disease rather than sequelae of disease or consequences of disease that our prior tests had done. So I made the shift into non-invasive imaging and uh, finished that up and got a really great job offer to come to New York City in 2005 and to try to head up a CT program and build that from scratch. And so um, came here in 2005 and have pretty much been here ever since. So it sounds like New York has been a, a city that, his, that has been good to you because you went to L.A., but then you wanted to come back. So uh, what, 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 what is the thing about New York City that you just keep coming back? It's just the best city in the world, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, for, for those who like urban life, like you cannot beat it. There's just you can do anything at any time. And, um, you know, it's open 24-7. It's truly a city that never sleeps. And, you know, there's just so much opportunity here, too. And. Um, so many bright, bright people that you can collaborate and partner with. And so, yeah, there's something about this city that I find to be infectious. So during your time here in, in New York City, you know, you obviously started pushing on the, on the clinical side and, and more on the prevention side. So what were some of the findings and things that were getting you even more excited about the problem that you had in front of you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because it sort of melded like the first six, seven years of my career, I spent a lot of time attending in the ICU. And so very end stage, very sick people and thought there's got to be a better way to do this than, you know, than to wait for people to have these catastrophic events. And, you know, it's, it's not just cardiology, it's pervasive through medicine, right? We spend more than half of our healthcare dollars on the last six months of life. Like if we allocated those monies to prevention on the other side of that spectrum, we would prevent these catastrophic events and we would never have to see them. And so, you know, I, in my seventh year, I, I started a program called Heart Health, which was a cardiovascular disease prevention program. And we had the luxury of being supported by the institution. And, you know, the patients really loved it. And the differentiating feature between our program and others was that, you know, we said to the patients, look, we don't really care what your cholesterol level is right now. We don't care about some of the other things that other people have really focused as as important. We're not saying that they're unimportant. We just, what we think the primary important measure here is simply how much disease you have. And the disease turns out to be the plaque buildup or the atherosclerosis within the heart arteries. And that builds up silently in the vast majority of people, such that the majority of folks who will have a heart attack or die from one have actually no symptoms before their event. So we started this prevention program to really carefully phenotype the types of disease somebody would have and leverage that information to see how sick they are, independent of whether they had symptoms or no symptoms. And then we would prescribe therapies, whether medical therapy or lifestyle interventions, uh, to really try to reduce that risk of heart attack 
and prove that we could halt the progression of disease. And we would prove that by doing uh, longitudinal imaging. Like after a few more years, we would you know, bring them back and we would show them actually what their therapies were doing. Did we halt the progression of disease? And then in parallel to that, we, we were doing something that informed sort of our therapeutic decision making. We had done a series of large scale multicenter clinical trials to understand, you know, what is disease and are there different types of it? And it turns out atherosclerosis is the primary disease process that causes all of the problems, but there are many different types. And what we found were that some were very unstable and risky for the patient and others were not. They were very stable and almost protective uh, for patients. And what we found was that the the good things that we would do for patients, whether it's medical therapy or a healthier diet or physical activity, they didn't regress the disease or regress the plaque. What they did was they transformed it um, from a very dangerous looking phenotype into a stable phenotype. So now we had two markers that we could identify. One was we can prove that we've stopped the progression of disease. And second, we can prove that we transformed the, the disease from an unstable to a more stable phenotype. And it was those lessons that we learned that would help us sort of do this precision care, right, where we would individualize and custom tailor therapies and custom tailor management plans um, based on exactly how much disease and the type of disease that person had. So what was that day, Jim, that, you know, it was like the, the most like mind blowing, like wow factor that you were perhaps, you know, like back at home, you know, on your bed, looking at the ceiling, and you were like, I cannot believe this. In this journey of like figuring out the whole prevention, you know, part of it. So I think that the realization came through the, these trials where we realized that the most important thing, the primary disease process, has never been measured in cardiology. For 70 years, we've looked at three things. We've looked at surrogates of disease, like cholesterol or um, LDL cholesterol. We look at signs of disease, like symptoms of chest pain or shortness of breath. And we look at sequela of disease, um, which is the downstream narrowings in the arteries that occur due to the plaque buildup. But for, for 70 years, we've never looked at the primary disease process. And so we work with some folks and they're like, isn't that just obvious that if you want to understand the biology of a disease, that you would study the actual disease? And we just never had tools to be able to, to do that until we had the advent of coronary CT angiography. But even then, when we did the research trials, it would take us seven, eight hours to analyze a single patient's image. And so we said, this is never going to be a clinical tool unless we can automate this somehow with high precision and accuracy. I think that was one big aha moment where, gosh, we need to measure disease, not surrogates. I think the second aha moment was when we were, when we started the company, we were approached by a couple of the imaging vendors. And at that point in time, they had a very strong emphasis on mammography. Like, um, I don't know why they were interested in it, but I think that they saw it as a potentially large commercial market opportunity. And so then they started pointing out what we were doing. And actually, somebody pointed out to me what was taught to me 20 years ago when I was training as an internal medicine resident. They said, look, what did you recommend for women at risk of breast cancer? We said, we used to recommend monthly breast exam. And we used to look for blood in the stool as an early sign of colon cancer. And we used to do chest x-rays in a limited fashion for patients at risk of lung cancer. And if you look at all of those three things, they all fell out over the last 20 years in lieu of advanced imaging to characterize and phenotype the primary disease process. So now we use 3D digital breast tomosynthesis or mammography. We use colonoscopies. We use high-resolution lung CT scans for patients at risk of breast, colon, and lung cancer. 
And then when I contrasted that with the way I was taught 20 years ago as a fellow, we don't do that and we haven't changed. We use surrogates, we use signs, we use sequela, but we never actually use advanced imaging to characterize actual disease. So the rhetorical question is, do you ever wonder why we use advanced imaging to prevent the most common causes of cancer, but not the most common cause of death? And that's the situation we're in today. And that's the, the, the purpose and the mission um, of the company, clearly, um, to try to identify those at risk so we can eradicate heart attacks from the face of the surf. So let's talk about, because I mean, during this time, you know, also you became a professor at Cornell, but, but this was all the segue into what became your baby, clearly. So let's talk about clearly. So, so how did you incubate? I mean, obviously you were already in this, you know, you were already looking into this, but what was that moment where you said, man, I got, I got to start a company and, 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 and kind of like the whole thought from incubation to bringing it to life. Like, like tell us about that process. Yeah, I mean, I think like we spent 15 years doing biology and large-scale clinical trials and taking care of patients, and we realized the patients absolutely loved the clinical cardiovascular disease prevention program that we had. They they raved about it. They told their friends. They told their family members. It was such a popular program when we were at Cornell and New York Presbyterian, but it was never going to scale. Like we had the we had the support of the institution. We had the support of some very generous um, philanthropists who helped support the program, but we would literally take eight hours to analyze a single person's image. And we realized it was never going to scale past the research because it took too long. It was never going to scale past the Cornell and New York Presbyterian walls because it was too costly. And we said, look, in order for us to deliver this at scale globally, we're going to need to figure out a way to automate or semi-automate this process. And at that time, we were doing a series of other research efforts and Around 2012, 2013, you know, that was when machine learning applied to medical imaging was just becoming a thing. So we had thrown our hat in that ring, too, from a research standpoint. And we said, aha, why don't we combine these two together? We'll take all of the machine intelligence, and then we'll take all of the biology that we understood, and then we'll fuse it, and then we'll try to create products and services that would touch each and every stakeholder of the care pathway. Because one other problem that we identified when we were taking care of patients and reading images was that if you're not an imager, you don't understand what's on the image. So we needed translational tools to really help effectively communicate to every stakeholder in the care pathway, whether it's the clinician, the imager, the patient, and really provide them and empower them with knowledge. So the, the transition to making this company was really out of that nidus of like, how do we deliver this to the world in a way that's scalable? Um, and usable and standardized and accurate and precise. And that was the nidus of Clearly in 2017. So tell us about the early days of Clearly. The early days of Clearly were like any startup. Like nothing, the, it was the antithesis of glamour, right? So it's definitely not a glamorous <laughs> process. Right, right. And, you know, for any, for, particularly for healthcare, as you well know, like it's a regulated industry. And so, you know, there's a lot of going through sort of not only product development and getting to minimum viable product, but also how do you get that regulatorily approved by the FDA or other regulatory bodies? And so we spent about two and a half years um, doing uh, product development on two FDA clear products and then started to say, okay, now we're here at this point. We, we now need to transition into the clinical community to be able to offer the services. And that transition was last year, about a year ago, where we uh, transitioned into the commercial space and identified clients who would really find um, great clinical utility in the products and services that we were offering. 
But first couple of years, two and a half years was, you know, it was a small um, but extremely talented team of engineers, data scientists, quality management folks, regulatory specialists. And, um, and it was really around just like, let's get products approved and uh, the ability to go to market. And then in this last year, it's really been about company building and thinking through all of the different uh, verticals that you need to uh, attack in order to successfully uh, disseminate the products and services. So for the people that are listening, Jim, what in, to really understand, I mean, what, what ended up becoming the business model of Clearly? Yeah, we have a number of verticals. Like um, we're focused on uh, two major verticals. Like we, we engage and partner with health systems and so hospitals and IDNs and to a lesser degree, large private practices and even some imaging centers where we have two programs. Uh, one is for that patient that we are worried about, the one who comes in with chest pain or shortness of breath that needs a comprehensive evaluation of their disease process that we haven't been able to give them before. So we have that product. And then we also have another um, program where we identify very high-risk individuals independent of their symptoms um, in order to get them on good preventive medical therapy and lifestyle interventions. So that's one that's been a, a very gratifying vertical to work with because you're really on the front line. And we believe that clearly should be the standard of care, of clinical care. Um, so that and we want to start in the health systems. And then the second is really to address, to use precision diagnostics to reduce healthcare waste. Um, the estimates are that about 40% of healthcare dollars in the U.S. are just wasted. Um, they don't actually do any good for patients. And we, we believe that part of that reason is because, at least in cardiology, we've so relied on population-based estimates of things, right? So I can take a million people over on the left and a million people over on the right, and I can say, yeah, that million people over on the right is much, much sicker than the million people on the left. But within the million people on the right, I can't pinpoint any particular individual and say, you specifically are the one that are sick. And that is the holy grail of personalized medicine and precision care. And that is what we offer. We offer precision diagnostics where we carefully and comprehensively phenotype the disease within every artery and its branches in a way that informs the clinician and the patient of how to deal with it and how to stop the progression of the disease. So if you can couple the precision diagnostics with this goal of reducing healthcare waste, then the second vertical really becomes around working with payers, right? So how do you do this in a way that you can do judicious referral management to cardiology, to stress testing, to invasive angiography in a manner that improves outcomes while reducing overall total cost of care? So those are the two major verticals. And how much capital have you guys raised today, Jim? We've raised just about a little under $60 million uh, worth of capital through two financing rounds. Our first one was about an $8.5 million round, and um, our second one was around $45 million. And we had done a small extension round right when COVID hit, just we didn't understand what the world would do. And so that was for about a few million dollars. I mean, obviously here, you know, like the one of the things that, that is there is that when you raise money, the idea is to go fast. And to go really fast. So how do you go fast? How do you scale a company like this without breaking it? Yeah, that's a really great question. Like, and it's one I think that you don't really come, it doesn't come to mind until you come face to face with it of like, well, we have to do hyper growth here. And how do you do that without exactly how you articulate it without breaking the company? Um, because it's all nice. You know, you see a lot of entrepreneurs put on an Excel spreadsheet that, you know, things just double every year. But at some point, you can't double every year. Like, it's just not possible without breaking the company. We have made a very active attempt to 
make sure that we build um, with hyper growth, but and at an extremely fast pace, but while maintaining the culture. I think the culture is probably so. When I think of company building, I think of it in four major sort of um, categories. I think there's the purpose, right? So are you doing something that's real? And what is the total addressable market? I think it's the people, right? So does that is that team have enough muscle memory to know how to build companies and without breaking them and scaling them? I think of the products. So is the technology, you know, answer a meaningful question? And then I think of numbers, right? Numbers includes capital raise, includes revenue. Um, and then, you know, obviously you got to get that off the ground. And so those are sort of the four major considerations that, that we, we keep in mind. We grew from about 12 to 15 people at the beginning of this year to about a hundred or so. So we, we've hired quite a bit in this last year. And so it's been very fast moving. Um, the COVID virtual work from home makes some things harder um, to communicate, but in many ways makes some things easier. So people don't have two and a half hour commutes and things like that. And, you know, there's less sort of strain on, on daily activities uh, due to the work from home. But um, we just try to be very careful. We hired a chief operating officer who's um, exquisitely good at communication, at organization, at focus. And so that's been very helpful. But I think um, building culture, transparent communication, I think having everybody on the team rallied around the mission and purpose, but also um, having uh, complete transparency and openness with them. That, that's worked for us so far, um, and that's what we'll continue to do. And you were mentioning COVID. I mean, obviously, COVID, you know, it's been a time where, for the first time, really, we're being, we've seen doctors, nurses on the cover of, mar of magazines, newspapers, day in, day out, and, and healthcare, you know, like has said now, I mean, people are definitely more conscious about themselves, taking care of themselves. I mean, would you say that that has, in a positive way, impacted you guys and also the momentum of you being able to build clearly in the way that you're doing? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Like in it, the ways that it has helped is to provide sort of secular tailwinds around this need to evaluate pa patients without necessarily putting them on a treadmill. Because our ways of doing it were to have people running on a treadmill and taking pictures of them. The COVID pandemic precluded that, right? Because there's a lot of respiratory droplets that are disseminated while somebody's breathing hard and things like that. So there was some shift at institutions to go to a CT first policy because that it's a one second or five second picture of somebody and then you're out the door. So it, it makes it much easier to evaluate. I think the other sort of tailwind that came by was that for the first time, um, about a week and a half ago, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology elevated coronary CT angiography, which is the primary imaging modality that we apply our technology to, to first line um, for, for the first time ever. So it was a level 1A um, classification for first um, tests to be evaluated for patients with suspected coronary artery disease above any other test out there. So those two things have been quite good um, for um, because it really established coronary CT as the standard of care, which is uh, which is great. I think where it didn't help the company is this this focus on COVID. It was a rightful focus on COVID, but if you look back at 2020, a lot more people died of cardiovascular disease than from deaths from COVID-19. So we're, we're, we're trying to raise the awareness that we have a public health epidemic and the number one public health epidemic in this world is cardiovascular disease. Somebody will die of cardiovascular disease every 1.7 seconds. 
And then the other thing that we have to educate people on is that waiting for symptoms like, you know, shortness of breath with COVID is, is happens because it's a silent sort of process. And then we suddenly re- realize that we're sick. We don't have to have that for heart disease because most people who will have a heart attack don't have any symptoms. So let's find you before you develop two, two significant amounts of disease. And then let's evaluate you comprehensively, even when you do develop symptoms. So across the continuum and spectrum of coronary disease um, extent and severity, I think our, our, our companies benefited from that. But we really need to raise the awareness. Still, women think that breast cancer is the number one cause of death in women. It's not. There are three times more deaths from cardiovascular disease in women than breast cancer deaths. And not to say we shouldn't emphasize breast cancer prevention. Absolutely, we should. But we also need to take care of this number one public health epidemic. And I think that the COVID has been good for the tailwinds, but it has also raised so much awareness just about COVID that we started to forget about the number one kill in the world. So in, in, in this case, I mean, imagine you go to sleep tonight, Jim, and you wake up in a world where the vision of clearly is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's a world without heart attacks. And it's a world where we're doing global worldwide screening, similar to the way that we would be doing mammography, colonoscopy, and lung cancer, um, low-dose lung cancer CT screening. We, it's the only ones that have worked. If you looked at the preventive care paradigms, we had to use imaging in order to phenotype disease. Our issue as a field was we've never actually looked at the actual disease. We've only looked at indirect markers of disease. Now that we have a non-invasive tool that has radiation doses as um, as possible, as low as a, a screening mammogram, and we have this kind of precision and outcomes data, there's no reason that we shouldn't identify these people earlier. The total cost that would be saved to the healthcare system, and more importantly, the total lives that would be saved in the world is just astounding. And so the, you know, five years ago, I think it was sort of a moot question because we didn't have much in the way of medical therapy. Like we had just statin medications. And, you know, so if you put everybody on a statin, then probably you don't need to actually identify the people who are at risk. You can just over-treat healthy people and um, appropriately treat sick people with a medication that's pretty inexpensive and has a very low side, um, effect, like low per, um, percentage of, of a side effect. In the last four years, we've seen the Food and Drug Administration approve at least 10 classes, new classes of medications that are blockbuster for preventing heart attacks. And if you do the additive exercise of seeing, hey, this one reduces heart attacks by 20%, and this one does by 10%, and, and you keep adding them up, it adds up to over 90%. So the conclusions I make from that is our toolbox is very heavy. We have a lot of tools that we can use to prevent heart attacks that are not invasive, um, that revolve around medical therapy and lifestyle interventions. The problem we have is not treatment. The problem we have is identification because what we are doing is we're waiting for people to come in with end-stage chest pain. It's like the equivalent of waiting for people to come in with end-stage metastatic cancer. It's just not a good way to do medicine. The best way to do medicine is to prevent it, right? So, the, And the best way to have good outcomes from a heart attack is to never have one. So we're here to identify the people whether you have symptoms or no symptoms, like we can identify um, patients with disease and leverage that to help support doctors so that they can properly treat and track the success of their therapy. That's amazing. Uh, one thing that, uh, that I like to ask you here is, imagine I put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time, let's say 2017, when you were thinking about launching, you know, clearly. If you had the opportunity of sitting down 
with that younger Jim and give that younger Jim one piece of advice before launching the business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think it would. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Like, and it's probably a loaded question because there's multiple responses to it. But I think if I had to succinctly say it in, in one answer, it would be solve a meaningful problem. Like, um, and don't and don't get so wedded to technology, but solve the problem that helps mankind. And I think that our team has done that extremely well. We've kept our focus on the purpose, on the mission, on the values of the company. And that, I, if I could give one piece of advice to anybody, it would be solve a meaningful problem. Amazing. So for the people that are listening, Jim, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, they can go to the website. It's www.clearlyhealth.com with two E's. And then uh, there's the email address that you can go to info and contact me at any point in time. I'd love to hear from, from your listeners. Amazing. Well, Jim, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.